Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another episode of Earth 911, Sustainability in Your Ear. I'm Mitch Ratcliffe, your host, and we have another innovator interview. We wanted to talk about regenerative farming, which, of course, has been a hot topic since the recent documentary, Kiss the Ground, which is available on Netflix, was released. And uh, a lot of people are talking about the value of cover cropping and using regenerative farming techniques to improve the soil health in the United States and around the world. So we invited Steve Groff, who is the author of uh, a new book, as well as creator of a widely used crop cover cropping strategy uh, that's used by regenerative farmers. And uh, he's a, a, a seller of cover cropping seeds. You can find deep explanations about all the stuff we're going to talk about at stevegroff.com. And as well, you can read his new book, The Future Proof Farm. Welcome, Steve. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to be on your show today. Well, thank you for coming and uh, talking with us. Now, you're an influential member of the regenerative farming community, and you've been involved for a very long time. After Kiss the Ground came out, are you finding that this is becoming a, a popular discussion amongst farmers and are you anticipating sort of a consolidation of regenerative farming's influence? Well, the, the, the documentary Kiss the Ground definitely was, um, I think from my perspective as a farmer, it reached a much broader audience than us, those of us in the regenerative agriculture movement uh, have been involved in. And that's the, the big positive that I see uh, from my perspective. And you know, I know uh, a lot of the people that were that were featured uh, in in the documentary. So in in my Facebook pages and Twitter and everything that that I do, uh, definitely it did stir up uh, a lot of interest. Uh, but primarily, we we got the attention, I think, of uh, the general public, the consumers, the non-farmers, right. the people who are interested in the way their food is grown. And that's a that's a good thing. That's that's one of my missions. Uh, that I have really been involved with. And that's why I wrote the book, The Future Proof Farm, not only for farmers to see the opportunity that regenerative agriculture has, but also for consumers to realize, hey, some of us out here are trying our best to grow nutritionally dense food that's going to be good for our own human health. Well, and I think that's what the book accomplishes is you draw the line between what's going on in the field and what's going on in the grocery store uh, yeah. quite you know, in a clear and easy to understand way. Can you kind mm -hmm. of explain the basic strategies of regenerative farming? Well, there's several different principles. Uh, some of the key ones are to have um, the soil covered. Um, I, I have a saying that uh, I actually trademark called soil is meant to be covered. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it's all under the context of trying to mimic nature. I think if you want to really distill the definition of regenerative agriculture down to one kind of phrase, it's we're trying to mimic nature. Now, I am, I am quick to say that there's limitations to that or, or we would all be out foraging for berries and nuts 
don't think we as a society want to do that. So uh, coming back from that perspective, we're trying to not disturb the soil. We're trying to keep the soil covered. We're trying to have diversity um, and multiple species of not only cash crops, but our cover crops as well. Um, and, and then down to, you know, I guess the, in the order maybe of influence of having introducing animals in, back into agriculture. Animals have pretty much been segregated out, put in barns and buildings oh, and okay. things. Uh, and, and I'm speaking very generally here. Right. But actually bringing animals back to the land. Um, and then that's a tough thing for uh, for some farmers, including myself, because I definitely consider myself a regenerative agriculture farmer. I do have a few uh, of a, a small herd of buffalo. So I guess you could say I do have some animals, but I don't incorporate them totally in all my uh, fields that I farm. So there's varying degrees of how regenerative agriculture is expressed and used. But the, the most important things um, are, are not disturbing the soil, keeping the soil covered, and, and diversity. That, those, those are core principles that regenerative agriculture does. Now, you mentioned the distinction between cash crops and cover crops. Can you, can you tell us a little more about what a cover crop is versus, say, the wheat you grow during the year to make the money? So, of course, our cash crops is the ones that we grow to sell. Um, and the, the cover crops, the name cover crop comes from Typically, they're used to cover the soil over the winter, typically. Can be in the summer, sometimes in between cash crops. So kind of a simple definition is we're trying to grow other plants to cover the soil, keep the soil protected, keep something growing in the soil. Because it's, it's so much more than just covering the soil. We're keeping the biological activity um, alive and well. And when we do that, we multiply earthworms, multiply all the other little critters that you can't see uh, with other than a microscope. So all these things add up. The, uh, the point here again, and, and again, one of the other principles that I really didn't cover was trying to keep something living in the soil year round. Mm-hmm. Obviously the further north you go, you'll have your uh, dormant seasons of the winter time. But the point is, is to have something living in that soil. Uh, and again, that's all about mimicking nature. Every, everywhere in nature where it's undisturbed by humanity, you see multiple species, the soil's not disturbed, and something's growing year round. So that's, again, what we're trying to uh, implement those things into our fields. And I think that's, you hit on an important thing, year round. A lot of people think things aren't growing in the winter, but in fact, a cover crop is a living organism interacting with the soil, even in the midst of a freeze, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and there's some interesting dynamics happen that, that I certainly have been front and center learning about. Um, and you would be surprised uh, how much a plant will grow, particularly the root system, over the winter. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say that if the ground's frozen two feet deep that it's, anything's sure. going to be growing. But, but aside from that, um, we, we know that uh, a popular cover crop like cereal rye that will actually, those roots will grow over winter. They'll literally grow, but not, even if they don't grow, the fact that there's something alive there in the soil is going to help all the critters that, that are, um, that are actually functioning based on other living organisms, be they plants or other species of tiny animals or whatever you want to call it. So, Mm -hmm. so it's amazing. It's, there's much more happening underground than meets the eye. Now, you, you point out that the United States has already lost a third of our topsoil. 
Mm-hmm. Can we restore that? And how long would it take? The answer to that is yes. And that's why I like the term regenerative agriculture, because we're regenerating it, regenerating it. We're making new, we're, we're healing the land, uh, if you will. So um, on my farm, uh, when I started into this, um, you, you could say I started in the early 80s. Uh, is when I started, I really got serious in the mid 90s, uh, then very intentional um, about this whole system. Uh, but going back 30, 40 years, my soil organic matter was uh, 2%. Um, now it's nearly 6%, it's nearly tripled. And soil organic matter is basically looking at the, uh, the active living part of the soil, the humus or the carbon, if you will. There's a couple different right. things that come together in that. Um, so literally, if you, would, if you would come to my farm, uh, you could look at the top two inches of soil is pretty much pure soil. Below that, you see the little stones and pebbles that I have that's, that's indigenous to my area here. So, you know, people ask, well, did, did you make that top two inches? And I'm like, well, yeah, but it was based on my management that I did it. So uh, a benchmark that I like to use is because people ask, well, how do you know when you're back to what it originally was before the land was farmed? And the best way I know is to to look at the woods or an undisturbed area. Uh, And I've taken soil samples of those areas and my woods here is around eight percent. So I feel like I'm still two percentage points to go yet. And I've been doing this for 20, 30 years. But, you know, we've been, we've done 150 years of tillage. And so we beat our soil up. And it's going to take, it's going to take a couple of decades to bring it back. Uh, so the answer is yes. Uh, and what we know now, we can bring it back way quicker than what I knew 30, 40 years ago. So let's, let's talk a little about your cover cropping strategy. Mm-hmm. Can you explain, I mean, you know, we, we've established planting over the winter is important, but you also talk with farmers about the fact that even that cover crop can be part of a cash uh, flow for them. Yeah. And there's various various ways to look at that. Um, One of them, I guess I'll give you the two simple ones is actually growing the cover crop for seed production to, 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 to repopulate. And I do that myself. I sell seed uh, to other farmers. The other way is to use it, um, and it's kind of like double duty. You, you grow it, you cover the soil, but then you can graze animals on it, or you can cut it for forage, like like hay. Um, so th- it becomes a question, and well, what is it a cover crop or is it a cash crop? We like to just simply use the, simply use the term. It's a dual purpose uh, crop out there. So grazing or using it for forage is a clear, uh, you know, doing both. Um, or like I said, if you're growing the the actual species. For seed production, uh, that's another aspect of how you can actually turn your cover crop into a cash crop. Okay, so now another element that was really fascinating about your book is you you, you tell farmers point blank they just need to plug into the global supply chain and understand the sentiment of consumers. And you share, for instance, how Whole Foods and Blue Apron have come to you, to your farm, with a series of qualifying questions before they would consider buying something from you. So how should we rethink the, you know, the, the, the vision of the isolated farmer on the high plains uh, in the Midwest so that they are becoming a globally aware participant in a sustainable market? Again, one of the clear reasons of why I wrote the book, because um, a lot of farmers don't even know about that. Uh, now, you know, I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. I've been on the speaking circuit all over the U.S., I've been to 13 countries. 
So my name is kind of out there. Um, and that in a way is an advantage for me because of name recognition, I guess you'd say. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding, the, the stuff I grow, these, the whole foods, blue apron, sweet green, they, they like it. They like what I do. And, um, and literally, you know, you could add sweet green to your list there. They came to me mm-hmm. because they heard about me and the, they like the way I grow, um, food. So to the, let's just say the Midwestern corn soybean farmer, um, there, there's some opportunities emerging now out there. Uh, General Mills has uh, spent quite a bit of money uh, in soil health research to help farmers do this. And, and uh, I'm not um, directly involved in some of their programs. I hear about them. Um, Wrangler Jeans is another one I highlight in the book. Uh, that's not food, but yeah. it, uh, it's cotton uh, that they, they're using a specific um, a brand they have established called the Rooted Collection. And you can choose the farm that you want your jeans uh, where the cotton was grown for your genes and that that farm was using regenerative agriculture principles. And I've been uh, helping with uh, Wrangler and giving them some uh, consulting and advice and, and how to help farmers in this. Uh, Wrangler has supported some, some research on how to uh, actually do this because a lot of farmers, you know, people ask the question, why, why don't more farmers do this? But you have to understand in agriculture, profits, profit margins are relatively uh, thin and we have the, the risk of weather a lot and markets and everything. So farmers aren't apt to quickly change the way they do things, things that have worked for decades. So this is what Wrangler is trying to show, show farmers. That's why they brought in me to say, hey, this, this can be done. And you'll have the innovative farmers jump right onto this. Uh, the nice thing about it is we got some momentum going now. I mean, even Walmart, McDonald's, uh, big names that everybody knows about, they have some sort of a sustainability plan that they're working on. And that's going to, that's going to, I think eventually, and I have a comment in the book that if, if you don't, if you're not aware of the opportunities out there, your farm may become obsolete because right. at some point, even if you're a corn or soybean farmer, the, the buyers of, of your grain may require some sort of soil health, regenerative agriculture practice. Uh, that's not there yet, but that's the direction we're headed. And again, the reason I wrote the book to kind of give farmers a heads up, if you will, of mm-hmm. what I see coming, because I see it as an opportunity. So it's interesting. So you, what you're really saying is that the, the farmer has to have a story about their crop and the sustainability of their crop because consumers... And the buyers who are trying to buy the the, the, the produce they're going to sell yeah. are tuning in to where this food came from and how it was grown in a way yeah. that they didn't before. So, do, does every farmer need to be a marketer now? <laughs> um, that's uh, that's a good question. I'll just answer quickly. Not all farmers are marketers. Uh, I I think that's a simple fun. categorization that works. <laughs> But the answer, you know, maybe more in depth would be yes. Um, you got to be aware of what's going on. Um, and, and you said about, you know, does every farmer or do farmers need to have a story? Well, I'll just say a story is is important, but you have to you have to be actually doing it, right? Uh, you know, and and doing the you know doing the the principles and so forth, and then um, you know then the story follows. Um, because that's, you know, the generation we're in right now, um, the, the story of even how you treat your workers uh, and all this enters into a, a consumer's decision on where they buy. 
And uh, so I see all that as opportunities. And I try to, I try to, you know, cultivate uh, the opportunities that apply to me. Uh, I'm not going to be growing uh, um, oats for General Mills for Cheerios because mm -hmm. uh, there's other regions of the country that are better for that. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. So there's, right. there's lots of opportunities popping up. And uh, yeah, to, to really to answer your question, I, I would say a qualified yes, you do need to be more of a marketer maybe than, than you had been in the past. Well, I, I'll just put a, an underline on that. You need to be an honest marketer. There are yeah. just marketers, but you have to be an honest marketer. You have to do what you say you're doing. Yeah, and, and to that point, I'm gonna I'm gonna push that a little further. That also applies to um, we'll just say the the buyers and the sellers to the consumers. Because some yep. of the I, I've dealt with some of the uh, people who liked my stuff, and I and I felt like they never really verified that I was doing what I said I was going to do. And I, I better not name names because some of you would know some of these names. I, I don't want to do that because I want to uh, you know, be positive here, but uh, I have literally sold some products um, that I cringed when I see, when I saw what they were claiming um, they were uh, because they never verified it. And in, and even though I had integrity with what I gave them, they never verified it. And, and I know human nature. There are some farmers out there that uh, would, would just get the product in. And there's also some resellers, we'll say, in the supply chain that they don't care. They just want to, all they want is a story. Right. And, yeah, no, and I think that's a valid point. But one, but, but we also need to have tracking capability. And we well, build that. that. That's right. And if, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but blockchain transparency, if, if you're familiar with that term, Yep. Uh, that's one thing I'm working on so that you can literally like if you go into sweet green uh, soup and salad uh, that's on the east and west coast coast um, they're 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 ramping up the technology where you can see exactly where that tomato came from the exact farm that may be in your salad uh, and that's the kind of thing I'm all for that uh, because that brings about the accountability and the integrity for the for the whole chain well, you know, the idea that, that, that you just raised blockchain transparency uh, as something that you're working on on your farm, it, it, it really shows how far we've come, even from yeah. 2000. Now, but that also raises the issue of how farming is being reconfigured. You know, we recently interviewed Eden Green. They make an urban farming technology that allows you to grow um, indoors, greens, berries, and peppers. Those aren't staples, but they are nice to have kind of produce. How do you see the U.S. food supply being reorganized to address different, you know, urban food deserts while continuing to grow staples like wheat, potatoes, rice, oats, yeah. and so forth? <clears throat> so there's a couple things come to mind, and I've been asked this question uh, quite a bit, actually, after the book came out. Um, urban food hubs, or whatever you want to call them, are, are never going to replace all of our food production. No, the sheer scale is not there. But what it does is it provides, I guess we could say, a story, number one, uh, of, of food just being grown in urban settings. And it can be done. Uh, rooftop gardens, windowsill gardens. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do with herbs and, and, mm -hmm. and all, that, all that kind of thing. But there's another component to that that I think may even be more impactful that not too many people talk about. And that's just the sheer experience that people have growing something to eat. Because we have been, we're three to five generations removed uh, as Americans here from agriculture. 
Uh, most of us, if you go back to your great grandparents, they probably had a probably had a connection to agriculture. But we yeah, they were farmers. My my grand grandparents were farmers. Yeah, but we've lost that as a society. And the, the, just the, if you can literally just grow a tomato plant in your porch and then pick that tomato and eat it, there's a new appreciation for food. And I also think there's therapeutic benefits just for your own well-being that you can actually grow something. There's just something there about that. So I see the whole urban thing of helping people get a little closer to how food is grown. And by the way, it may not be as easy as you think. Oh, nothing is. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a reality there that it gives an appreciation for those of us who do this for a livelihood. I tell, I like to tell people that anybody can grow a, a tomato in their garden uh, to eat and in, in their salad or whatever, but not everybody can grow a tomato and earn a living off of it. Two different but, things. It, but this raises some really interesting questions about you know you mentioned using blockchain to to provide tracking capabilities. Are there ways to? And, and we talked about story. Are there ways to take the community supported agriculture movement, the cooperatives called CSAs for those of you listening, uh, to to finance a different approach to supporting farmers like you uh, to grow the things that people most desperately want. You know, that's a question that 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 we get into discussions about. It, there's no clear answer. I just did a webinar yesterday. Um, for a retirement home, um, they have their monthly webinars, just educational webinars. And uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking, but the, the one lady questioned me. She goes, I, I can afford to pay $7 a dozen for eggs. Yeah, this is the kind and of thing. She says, not everybody can afford that. So what do we do about that? Because you know, the regenerative agriculture in general is, is not, um, you know, exorbitantly more expensive per se. But when you start getting into, you know, pasture-raised um, production and all that, it is more expensive than confinement. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of vote with your dollars who you want to support. But what about the population that simply can't afford that? Right. That is a question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, but it certainly needs to be continued to, to be discussed because it's important. Uh, so how long do you think it Usually the lower-income people need it the most. So. And I think there are ways to create cross subsidies between different groups of consumers that, to address some of that, which we won't get into now. But let me ask again about the, the transparency. How long do you think it's going to be before it becomes commonplace to be able to identify a sustainably grown regenerative crop at well, retail? I think if we would say common use, widespread use, it's a couple years away. Uh, five years, I don't know for sure, 10 years. This is pretty much a wild, educated guess, maybe, but it's already beginning to happen. And and I just think that that will naturally uh, snowball um, because there's so much good about about that, the, the integrity of it, the identification of it. Um, I You know, I hear some people, you know, farmers bemoan the fact, oh, that's just more paperwork and more yada yada. But, uh, you know, I see it again as an opportunity. Um, you know, because I want people are welcome to come to my farm anytime. I have nothing to hide um, with what I do. Um, not everybody may agree with everything I do. But we can talk about that. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I, I just think the transparency aspect is happening in, in, in more than just food. Mm-hmm. So it is a thing that's out there that's that I, I think will definitely, definitely grow. I would say in a couple of years, it's going to be much more noticeable and 
you know, in the five to 10 year time frame, we'll, we'll really, really see if it takes a hold. Well, I, I, that's really encouraging to hear from your perspective, because, I, you know, one of the complaints about the way life works now is you have to record so much more. On the other hand, all of that becomes the basis for other people's choices. And, and, and we kind of have to grow into that as a society. Uh, there's greater transparency. You simply have to be more open about what you do. Yes. Now, my last question really comes back to where we are right now, and that is there's a new administration coming in um, in January. What advice do you have for the Biden administration as it starts with regard to agricultural policy? Well, I, I think to continue to promote this uh, regenerative type agriculture, that's the word we're using right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I just I just think that's where it's at. Uh, I see opportunities out there. I kind of live it myself. So, um, you know, I, I'm, that's why I'm promoting it. So do they need to, do they need to put subsidies in place in order to, to encourage more farmers to make this transition? Um, I prefer to let the market work Okay. But to help, to help farmers make the transition. I'm also supporting. So uh, I'm not, I wouldn't advocate all out subsidies because I feel that uh, this is easily, uh, once you understand how this done's, is done, you know, the market will work. But the, 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 the public is more interested in health than ever. And with social media and all the, all the technology we have to get information out there, I feel that, uh, that, that this is going to continue to uh, consumer demand. But the one, the one chapter in my book is She's Your New Boss. Mm -hmm. And and that all that all is going back to it, it, it's just a stereotypical millennial shopper who is um, they're looking down the produce aisle. They're choosing what to put in their cart based on how the food was grown. So letting the market work, I, I see I see that's important um, as far as uh, subsidi subsidies. I, I would I would rather put that into the education side okay. to uh, focus on the education because subsidies. If you're just doling out subsidies, they're they're like forever. But if you teach people, it's the whole thing, you know. Instead of giving someone a fish, teach them to fish. So, so, so more R and D, perhaps, uh, in addition to education, because that's how you get the material for the education is doing. Yes, this. yes, and I would advocate. Um, you know, we need our universities, we need our USDA, but having them work more with farmers. One of the complaints of farmers is is you have a, um, uh, an institutionalized researcher who, you know, they have plenty of money maybe to do their research, but sometimes it's not practical uh, to, to apply it at farm scale or actually out on the farm. So um, I really like the uh, research that involves farmers where researchers literally come out to farms and do the research on the farm because that's so much more effective. Uh, farmers will, will actually buy in quicker and also gives the researcher credibility when you work with farmers. So that's a little bit of my bully pulpit, I guess you'd say right there on, on that aspect of research and development. Well, I think that, you know, look, I, I'm a graduate of a land grant college and, and you don't appreciate how uh, integral the farming community is until you spend time somewhere deeply enmeshed in the agricultural world. And I went to yeah. Washington State University. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, in the 40 years since I went there, I have watched the university help the region turn into a grow powerhouse. Uh, you know, more wheat is grown in the in the 
just in the county around the university than anywhere else in the United States because wow. of the investment in research at the university. Mm-hmm. So it's great to it's great to see that what we should do is educate more because that is the basis for a lot of additional prosperity. So, Steve, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, folks, that's Steve Groff. Check him out at stevegroff.com as well as uh, take a look at his new book, The Future Proof Farm. We'll have a link in the article that goes with this podcast. Uh, We'll also be linking to a couple of videos from his site, which are fascinating. Uh, Folks, this is Earth 911's Sustainability in Your Ear. I'm Mitch Ratcliffe, and we'll be back with another innovator interview soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and let's take care of the planet. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.